right, well, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We use these verses from this chapter at all the weddings that we do. But if you don't understand it in its proper context, it doesn't make any sense at all. And we may associate sometimes, especially in the English language, this word love in ways that it shouldn't be applied. For example, I could say, I love a cheeseburger, I love my dog, I love my wife. Not all those things mean the same thing. And in the Greek, many Bible scholars here know that there's four different words in the Greek for the word love. Many of you don't know that in the Greek, ancient Greek language, there's nine actual words for the Greek word love. But we want to keep it biblical, and we don't have enough time, so we're going to just go with the biblical four. The first one is eros, which is a sensual, romantic love. That's between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage. At least that's where it's supposed to be. Now, you have a storge or a storge love. I can't speak Greek properly, so you guys that are all um, Bible scholars and, and went to the universities, you can come lecture me later. I don't care. <laughs> you have the storge love, which is a family love, the family bonds. You have a phileo love, which is the brotherly love. Of course, there isn't much of that in Philadelphia, where it's actually named for. But the word that for love that we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 13 over and over and over again is the agape love. The agape love is this self-sacrificing, devoted love. It's greater than our feelings. It's greater than emotion. It's greater than sensuality. It's dedicated. And that's the word that we're going to be studying here. And we have to get rid of that misconception in our mind that, that God has some kind of sappy, emotional love for us. Now, he does, through Jesus, we see he does have feelings and emotions. And Jesus wept. Jesus was angry, righteous anger. He had compassion. He had a great many things. But this agape love transcends that. It's greater than that. You know, when I was in the fourth grade in my California public school, they passed out those Valentine's Day cards. All they cared about was what candy was in there. But we got to this feeling that love was about feelings. And that's not the biblical case here. So let's go into chapter 13. Let's read what it says. Let's go through it verse by verse. And let's see what the biblical definition of love is. But let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do pray that you would empower the teaching of your word, that we would come into a fresh understanding of you, that you would fill us with your spirit, and that when we leave here, Lord, we would have a greater understanding of these things and be able to share it with the world. So we pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, again, just like our introduction said, the context here is so important. First Corinthians chapter 13 
is not a one-off topical study. 1 Corinthians 13, don't know if you know this or not, comes after chapter 12 and before chapter 14. I'm being facetious, but what am I trying to say? That it's confined to the context. Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about the brothers and sisters in Corinth gathering together. And he's been going through the misuse and abuse of the gifts of the Spirit, which he's talking about here. We've seen the divisions. We saw them earlier in 1 Corinthians suing each other with lawsuits. They were stumbling others while they're eating meat under idols uh, that was offered to idols, and sometimes not. We saw that they had spiritual pride. Remember Paul said to those that said, oh, it doesn't matter if we eat meat unto idols or not because there's no God but God. And Paul said, yeah, this is true. But he said that they were in error because they didn't care about their pagan brothers and sisters. And then we saw the improper roles of the church. And now he's tying all those things together here in chapter 13. And we're seeing that the focus is on love. Not the sappy love, not the emotional love, not, you know, can I go and uh, flirt with the high school girl in remedial math and then marry her? That's what I did. No, that's, that's a different type of love. This is the agape love. But it's what we're supposed to be known for as Christians. You see, you can go through religious exercises. Here it says you could feed all the poor. But yet love is nothing. He says you can have all knowledge. You could become a biblical scholar. And then you could teach the Bible and say you actually are a Greek scholar. I can't do that. But if you don't have love, it means nothing. Paul even says here you could give your whole body and die. But if you do it without this agape love, it's nothing. Warren Wiersbe, he, he said it just too well for me not to rip him off. He, he said, the main evidence of maturity in the Christian life is a growing love for God and for God's people, as well as a love for lost souls. It has been said that love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. Remember what it says here. You said you can have all knowledge. Some people in their Christian walk, they just want to be the smartest Christians. But if you have not love, it it is nothing. If you don't have an agape love for God and his people, what's the point? There are others that seek spiritual gifts above all else. That's all they want to talk about. Like you're not spiritually mature if you don't have them. No, you're not spiritually mature if you don't have an agape love for God and agape love for each other. I mean, this is so important that God even defines himself by this word. What what do I mean? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, for a guy like me, we don't like those verses. Why? Because I am very stoic. I don't want any of this feeling nonsense, this gobbledygook. I have redefined what true love is in my mind. No, this is a self-sacrificing love. He's, it's going to be defined for us here in the next few verses. But we need to be very careful. Without it, we can do all kinds of religious things for no reason whatsoever, no purpose. It just becomes noise without having a relationship with God. When we grow in the Word of God, especially here at Calvary Chapel, we, 
We want to go expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the whole Bible. It becomes easy for us to go and look at people and be like, well, you know, you, what do you know? I learned that there's nine words for, a God, for love in Greek. What about you? What did you learn this weekend? Your pastor's fishing story? No. We saw earlier in this epistle, in chapter 8, speaking of spiritual things, about, and, well, let me just read it for you. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now, I want to be very clear here, especially if you're new, you're visiting here. We are not putting down biblical knowledge. The word of God is inerrant. It is unchangeable. God, Jesus himself identifies himself as truth. It is faithful for rebuke, exhortation. The word of God is how we know God. We worship him in spirit and in truth. What he is saying is that if you only focus on the word of God, on the literature, historical context, and you don't apply it with love for God and each other, it's nothing. It's nothing. How important is this? Jesus tells us in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You can underline that one. That you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. It doesn't say we'll be known as his disciples because of our biblical knowledge. It doesn't say we'll be known as his disciples because of our spiritual gifts. Jesus claims if you're going to be known as you're a disciple of his by your love, by your love for one another. He identifies himself as agape. Now, love is not God, but God can be, is expressed as agape love. Remember, we're not worshiping a feeling. We're not chasing an emotion. This is a biblical truth, a fact that we're to grow in. Now, again, many people think that love is some kind of uh, baby flying around with a bow and arrow. No, love is expressed by Jesus Christ giving himself on the cross for he so loved the world, agape, that he gave his only begotten son. True love. So how do we define this? What is this agape love? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here in verses 4 through 7, it says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the biblical definition of what agape love is. Now, there's two types of people in this room right now. There are those like me, the rare minority, that loves this part. We love bears all things. Like, yes, yeah, I can do that. Endures all things. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's the kind of love I can do. Suffers long. Yeah, give me the rucksack. I'll take it up the mountain. That's what real love is. I just conveniently like to ignore is kind. Oh, come on. Is not rude. What are you talking about? But there's the other group here that that's all they focus on. Love is kind and patient. 
It's not rude. But they want to ignore suffers long, bears all things, endures all things. We see it's together. It's not one extreme or the other. It is perfectly summed up in Christ himself. Many Bible teachers do this properly, and we will apply it as well. You can change the word love in this section for Jesus. Let's do it together, right? Verse 4, it says, Jesus suffers long and is kind. Remember, we're changing that word. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own. He's not provoked. He thinks no evil. He does not rejoice in iniquity. He rejoices in truth. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. We see it properly and perfectly applied because God is agape, love. Is, is Jesus wandering around concerned about his feelings and everyone's feelings and just being nice all the time? Is he just happy all the time? Is he floating everywhere he goes? Absolutely not. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's strong. Remember the only autobiographical statement he says, I am meek and lowly of heart. That does not mean weak. The man that could throw the money changers' tables in the temple, making a whip of cords. The man who could look at the Pharisees with agape, with love, and say, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. The one who could stand there and sit there and have those lashes upon his back enduring all things and who could from the cross declare forgive them father for they know not what they do that is agape love the love we're to have for god is shown in his son the love we're to have one for another remember we can't divorce the context here this agape love is to motivate the corinthians who were seeking self-satisfaction seeking themselves with the operations of the gifts of the spirit They were trying to puff themselves up. Remember in their agape love feast and the communion time, it was about individuals and not about the Lord. They weren't looking out for one another. Remember, Jesus said that without love, we're not even his disciples. And again, we want to define it properly, this agape love. So if you're like me, you're like, okay, I understand. I can't do that, though. How am I supposed to do this? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So God is going to teach us how to do this. I am very stoic. I am not a generally loving individual. I do not like to give praise or receive praise. I am the opposite of what you would think a kind person is. And yet, I am commanded to love. Now, I express my love differently. Ask ask my life. I have a different love language. No, I'm not going there. No. Stick to the Bible. I heard some husbands say amen. But he doesn't just teach us God. He doesn't just teach us how to do this. Because I can't. On my own, I cannot. He empowers us and he equips us to love. Remember the right kind of love. In Romans 5, 5, it says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So he's going to teach us and then he's going to fill us and empower us through the Holy Spirit. Now remember, 
1 Corinthians 13 is in the middle of a discussion on spiritual giftings in the church. But God is imbuing, he's in doing is the word I'm looking for. He's trying to give us these spiritual gifts as he sees fit, the Bible says, to gather us together to glorify himself and to edify the church. He's going to be unifying us. Now, that's going to be important as we go into the next section in chapters 8. Chapters? I don't, we're not going to be here that long. Verses 8 and 10. 8 through 10. Now, there are those. We're going to f- switch gears, but we're going to tie it all together. There are those that say that spiritual gifts are not for today. And I've been hinting for the last few weeks we were going to talk about it. The next few verses are the proof text for those that are called cessationists. That's a fancy word that means they believe the miracle gifts, the sign gifts are over with. And then you have continuationists. We believe that the gifts are continuing for today. The problem is you have extremes. So there are denominations on the extreme continuationists that believe that if you do not speak in tongues, you're not saved. That is not correct. Remember in the previous chapter, do all speak in tongues? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all apostles? Absolutely not. So no, that's not biblical. But to say that all of the spiritual gifts on the other extreme are gone is also not biblical. What am I talking about? Let's look at it together and we'll examine. Verses 8 through 10. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. Now, they believe that the the cessationist believes that that which is perfect has come is speaking of the word of God, the authenticated 66 book canon word of God. And we already said earlier, yes, we 100 percent affirm that the Bible is inerrant. We're going to talk about this in its context. I just want you to strap in a little bit because we have to come off the off ramp before we come back to the first Corinthians 13 freeway. Because I want to build a basis here. The people that believe that the miraculous gifts ended only to authenticate the word of God. They believe the miracle gifts, speaking in tongues, prophesying, gifts of healings, were only there for a time to prove the word of God, that the Bible was correct. That is not the only reason for those gifts. That wasn't the purpose of those gifts. How can I say that? Well, in the next chapter, in chapter 14, it says in verse 12, even so you... Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. We're to seek spiritual gifts because it edifies, builds us up. It unifies us as we're seeking the Lord. It's showing the Lord. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to talk about proper operation. What's the biblical stance? How's it supposed to happen? But we see that these miraculous sign gifts, they don't bring anyone to faith. Even the miracles of Jesus, he was with them. He was walking with them. He was healing people, bringing sight, restoring people's hands, their feet, taking away leprosy, raising from the dead. And what did the Bible say in John chapter 12, verse 37? But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. In fact, Jesus rebukes those that only seek after a sign for proof or evidences. 
Now, these are slightly added context. I, I understand that. But let's look at the verses. Speaking of the Pharisees, they came to him and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great, the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And even when he did raise up from the dead, they didn't, many did not believe. Many did. Remember, 500 people saw him, the resurrected Lord. On the day of Pentecost, thousands were saved. So many people did, but many people saw those miracles. They saw Jesus perform them. They saw him crucified. They saw him raised from the dead. They still said, nah, that's all fake. But what are we getting at here? The presupposition, the fancy word that just means, the reason they say this, they say the sign gifts, and there's a text they're going to use to prove it, they're not only to authenticate Scripture. That's not what they're for. Now, it does. It does. The emphasis here that I'm trying to say is it's not the only reason for them, though. They're, they're to continue on. Now, I want to do proof number two is that nobody believes in complete cessationism. What, what do I mean by that? No Christian believes that the gift of preaching and teaching is gone. Nobody believes that the, the gift of helps or administration is gone. The gift of encouragement is gone. Nobody believes that. And so they want to say that only certain gifts are gone, what they call sign or miraculous gifts. Now, I want to defend them for a moment here. Because most of the time, and maybe you fit in this background as well, you know what crazy is in the church. You, you know what you, this thing you guys are doing over here, that ain't, that's not from Jesus. I don't know what that is. I'm not a Bible scholar, but rolling around the and, and barking like a dog, you think that's Jesus blessing you. No, not in my book. So what you do, though, is you go to the other extreme. Well, since that's crazy, it's all crazy. I'm just not, let's just shut that door and pretend it's not even in there. And so I understand why many people take this stance. The problem is it's not a biblical stance. There is no until when Jesus says in Mark chapter 16, verses 17 through 20, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after that, the Lord had spoken to them. He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, I wanted to make sure I included verse 20, because this is where they get the, the words sign gifts from. Verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. My point is that that is not only the purpose to be accompanying signs. It wasn't just to prove the word of God, but it does. It is an accompanying sign. It does show the truth. But remember the magicians of Pharaoh? They were able to perform miracles. The Bible warns us that the enemy can perform miracles. Unless they're done in the name of Jesus Christ, they're done by the enemy. So the enemy can perform miracles. Those haven't ceased. And so we need to be very careful. There was no until. And the word of God is still being authenticated in portions of the planet today. Deep in the Amazon jungle, there are still unreached tribes. In Africa, in Asia, 
in the Islamic world, there are many that have never heard the gospel of Christ. And I believe that there are still miraculous things taking place on that journey. There was no until. Now, we also see in Acts chapter 2, Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for, to you, to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. To your children, your children, as many as afar off. So you're like, Mike, we really left the text a long time ago. I get it. I get it. Let's come on back. What does it say? It says, but that which is perfect is come. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Well, Mike, if you're saying it's not the word of God, what are you talking about? What are they talking about being done away with? I'm saying that all of the gifts will be gone when we see that which is truly perfect. What is the definition of perfect here? Is it the word of God? No, it is Jesus himself. Now, let's go to a real Bible scholar, David Guzik. He teaches us here about this Greek word, perfect. He says, the ancient Greek word for perfect is telos. Considering the way the New Testament uses telos in other passages, let's look at those passages. It certainly seems to speak about the coming of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 24, James chapter 5 verse 11, Revelation 20 verse 5, 20 verse 7, 21 verse 6, and 22 verse 13 are all the word telos, perfect. They always refer to Jesus. When Jesus comes, that which is done in part, that which we don't know is going to be done away with. There will be no more gifts of the Spirit when Jesus returns for his church and we're in his presence because we don't need him to edify the church and to lead us by faith. We will be with him what does it say here? What does it say here in verses 11 through 13? Let's read together. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide in faith, hope, Love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. When, what then, face to face. I believe this is literally face to face. We will literally be face to face with Jesus. He will take his church home. We will be caught up in the clouds. Or if we die before the rapture, he says, enter. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the grace of the Lord. You will be with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb face to face and when you go face to face you won't need any of the spiritual gifts because we will be with him now i would be remiss as a bible teacher if i didn't talk about when he says we see in a mirror dimly if i didn't mention the corinthian bronze so corinthian bronze was a bronze that they would have they were manufacturing it there there were no mirrors at that time you couldn't go into your bathroom do your hair and your makeup you would buy what's called Corinthian bronze and they would get the bronze and they would polish that thing up till it reflected and then you could see yourself, but it's not right. It's not exactly what you look like. Like you would see a reflection in water. You would see exactly what you look like. And so Paul is using this example. He says this world that we live in right now, we don't see spiritual things clearly. 
we see it through Corinthian bronze. The reflection isn't right. But when we see Jesus face to face, then we're going to have all these things completed. And so in verse 11, though, that's the proof that the cessation says, yeah, see, 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 they were childish before, but now we have the completion of the word of God. But what did we see in the beginning of this chapter? Context, context, context. You can have all knowledge, but have no love. It's nothing. Any more than the continuationist who says, well, I have all the gifts of the spirit. That makes me more saved than you are. No, no, that's not. That's not the context here. That's not what this chapter is talking about. And that's what I love about Calvary Chapel. The Pentecostals say we're a bunch of Baptists, and the Baptists say we're a bunch of Pentecostals. When we're just biblical students, we just whatever the book says, that what we, that's what we do. We're going to see that that door that we closed earlier, that, that door stays shut. That ain't, I don't know what that is that they're doing over there, rolling on the floor, saying, I, I've seen it, you've seen it. They, they grab your, your chin, they start bouncing it up and down a little bit. They're going to try and help you get the, the sign gifts. That is not biblical. That is nowhere in the book. Nowhere in the book. Never seen Jesus hit anyone with a jacket to heal them. He did all kinds of different ways. Never seen that one. No, we want to be led by this agape love to grow in the inerrant word of God. We want to seek the very best best gifts, just like Paul said. We want to use them decently and in order because we know that love never fails. Verse 8, we know that love, the agape love of God never fails, nor will it fail for every one of us. I want to point out one last thing. When the cessationist is using this text, it also says in verse 8, what does it say? It says, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Wait a minute. Isn't your proof text here that we have this knowledge, therefore it's gone away? That the knowledge, the word of God, is the completion. It's incorrect. It does not work. It does not fit. And so we have to come to the gifts of the Spirit with a biblical mindset. Mike, are you saying you're going to make me speak in tongues? Absolutely not. Remember in the previous chapter, do all speak in tongues? No. Are all apostles? No. Are all teachers? No. We're not going to make you do anything. But we're going to have agape love for each other. We're going to continue to grow in whatever God has given us. Because Jesus claims that you cannot be a disciple of his unless you are known for the agape. That's the goal. We're not seeking anything but Jesus and to have him magnified in our lives. That is the goal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you teach us, you direct us, you stretch us. We pray that you would continue to lead us, that we would be more and more like you every day. We're honored to be called Christian, and we pray that you would mold us more into that image every single day. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. If you need prayer, want to share a story, introduce yourself, come on up. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.